This is Holidays Unbound, Episode 2. What is Passover for? Welcome back, everyone. I'm Dan Liebenson. And I'm Ruth A. Bushmagger. And we're excited to begin our four-episode series on Passover. Just to remind you, after our introductory episode last week, we are starting a new series called Holidays Unbound. Right now, it's kind of in the experimental stage. We're trying to figure out the right style for it and also how we can put together this style in an affordable manner. We want to do this series more journalism style with a lot of shorter snippets, interviews with people that are interspersed in different ways. We hope that the next four episodes will give you a taste of that. We're actually hoping to do something a little bit more complex. But as we've told you in the last episode, it's a little bit daunting that we've discovered uh, a lot more editing is needed, and that's a whole bigger operation. So we're looking for feedback on the style, ideas that you might have on what we're doing. And if you are a person out there who has resources and would like to help us hire the kind of editor that we need to make this podcast what we want it to be, please uh, speak up and let us know. We'd be really excited to talk to you. In the meantime, we're doing these five episodes uh, sort of on spec. We released our introductory episode last week, and we're releasing these four episodes on Passover this week. And we're really hoping that we'll be back in the fall with the full series. Our idea is to do something like eight or ten hours on each holiday to really allow people to do a deep dive into the holiday, think about it in new ways, think of new things that you might do for the holidays, and get creative with them. We're imagining that people might listen to these podcasts and get together with small groups of friends, talk about how to do things differently this year, experiment, then let us know what you did and beat it back into the system. And over the course of time, we'll come up with a lot of interesting ideas. We're hoping to use our website as an interesting resource hub for this. And uh, again, we're looking for your ideas if you have any about how to make this podcast really great and really helpful. So today we're going to be starting with Passover, and our upcoming episodes are going to be about whether the Exodus actually happened, about the Seder, and about the food for Passover. But we thought we'd start off today with the question, why Passover? What is Passover for? What's it all about? Actually, that's the way that a lot of Talmudic discussions start when they're looking at something like this. They basically just say, why Passover? So that's how we're going to start today. Well, you know, it's a holiday of questions in the first place. So what we, we figured, you know, why not start with the questions? I think it's a good place. I guess it's like a fifth question, like why Passover? There's a few levels to that. One is why are we starting our podcast with Passover? That was actually something that we chose to do. You know, we thought about starting earlier for the high holidays, thought about starting later for Hanukkah. Some of that was practical, but a lot of that was actually believing that Passover is the right place to start. One of the most basic reasons why I think it's valuable to start with Passover has to do with what we discussed in our introductory episode about why we're starting with the holidays, that they're things that a lot of people do. So Passover is actually one of the most observed Jewish holidays, meaning more Jews participate in a Passover Seder than just about any other Jewish ritual in the course of the year. So even just from a very practical standpoint as to Let's start with something that a lot of people actually are doing in their lives and see if we can help them make it even better. Seems like a good place to start. I'm always wondering, why do people celebrate Passover over other holidays? There's a few really great reasons in my mind. One of them is this is a low barrier holiday. You don't have to join a synagogue. You don't have to go anywhere. You can just do it at home. And it's kind of on the model of a lot of other American holidays and gatherings. It's kind of like Thanksgiving. You can get everybody around the table. You have some food. The food is at the center. I'm all about the food. But I think there's another piece that's really critical. There's no rabbi telling you what to do. 
everybody can do whatever they want. Whatever you're doing in your Seder, nobody's there to tell you you're doing it right or wrong. You do what you want. And you can also add to that, you can bring in anybody who you want to have come. Your crazy Aunt Mildred can come or she can't, but depends. that's up to you. You can invite your neighbors who aren't Jewish. You can invite your friends from college and do it. You don't have to do it with a set group of people like uh, there are other Jewish rituals that have like prescribed ideas of who it is. So this is a holiday that you can do by yourself. You can do it with a group. You can have a big group. And you, it really is, allows for creativity, food, and fun. And that's part of the reason I think that this is, this is the most popular of the Jewish holidays. In a previous part of my career, I worked with college students. And one of the really interesting things that came up in some of my conversations with them was that I would say, you know, who has had a really deeply meaningful experience on Passover where you really felt transformed by the experience. And pretty much nobody said that they had had that. And, uh, but yet they said that they loved Passover. And so I would probe at what was it that they really loved about Passover. And what I found was that it was really what I would call the Thanksgiving element of Passover, right? The fact that the family gathers. There are family gatherings for other Jewish holidays, but I think people experience Passover as basically the holiday of family gatherings. And I actually think that's pretty true to Passover's root. You know, even in the Bible, it talks about the idea that every family has their own animal that's slaughtered for Passover. It happens family by family. Well, it was family by family, but also people were invited in to share. And I think that idea of sharing and family and community and connection is and putting that front and center. If you don't go to synagogue the entire time, nobody thinks you're doing anything wrong on Passover. You don't go to synagogue on Yom Kippur, people might look at you askance. This is fine. You can just do this at home and you can do it any way you want. So I think that there's that democratic element. And the other piece I think that happens at Passover is the story is great. I mean, the story is easy to access and it's a universal great story. The underdog wins. There's magic. There's tension, there's revenge. It's got all the elements of a great drama. And having a great story, is it's a compelling place to start, especially for us as we're talking about how do we make meaning. Stories are a great place to have meaning. One of the parts, one of the elements of Passover that I think at least in, if you were thinking from the point of view of a traditional rabbinic Judaism, you might also start with Passover because in rabbinic Judaism, the major festivals, the three major festivals, Passover, Sukkot, and Shavuot, all reenact dimensions of the wandering in the desert story from the Bible. Passover is the beginning. That's when we got out of Egypt, which started the wandering. And then Shavuot reenacts that important moment at Mount Sinai where the law was given, and Sukkot reenacts the rest of the wandering, basically living in these shacks and just kind of being subject to nature or in a more traditional idea under the protection of God and able to survive even though we didn't have a whole lot going for us. So it's interesting to me to think about how we might think about Passover in our own time in terms of, will it be the best place to start in the future? You know, from a kind of story standpoint, I mean, from the standpoint of what you were talking about in terms of people family and, and all those other elements that you talked about, I think that that is definitely very live today. And, and I'm wondering whether the story part will also stay as this is a great place to start because this is somehow deeply core to the 
point of being Jewish in our time. And, and I wonder if that's going to continue in the way that it has been for the last couple thousand years. The other piece that that happens here, I, and I think we're going to hear about that story in the creation myth and the meaning of that story and the value of it when we talk to Shai Held. But I think that there's another piece here, which is it's a creation myth of, of a people. And creation stories are important stories. We all have them, whether they're for our individual families or ourselves, how we got here, um, you know, how we met our significant others, how we how we found our way to college X or Y, how we found this job that we weren't, those stories are stories, you know, there's a universal element. So the combination of universal elements, I think, is something we're going to explore. And I think that this story, another reason to start with Passover, is that if you're not talking about some of those universal elements, you might want to rethink how you want to do your, your Passover Seder and your Passover, because there's that opportunity to have those great deeper conversations. Passover is a, is a holiday that allows us, invites us, encourages us to really have deep conversations. And they may not be, even if you don't take them for exactly what they were in the written text, you can riff off of them and have meaningful experience that allows you to have a good Passover experience. Well, we invited Rabbi Shai Held to reflect on some of these questions. He is the president and dean of Machon Hadar and was a guest on Judaism Unbound on episode 49. And we asked Shai to reflect on the importance of the Passover story and what it meant in the past and what it could mean for us in the future. First and foremost, the Exodus is the founding and foundational story of the Jewish people. Fundamental identity of the Jewish people from the Bible on is we were a nation of slaves, and we were saved from slavery. That was always understood to have theological implications. We worship the God who saved us, and ethical implications. We try to create a society that is the antithesis of Egypt. There are all kinds of ways in which I think biblical ethics is an attempt to construct a radical alternative to Egypt. Sinai as a kind of um, divine alternative to the oppressive culture of Egypt. I think on another level, Exodus is the affirmation that there is no status quo that needs to be worshipped. Every status quo can ultimately be overturned. Part of what it means to believe traditionally in a transcendent God, I think, is that it relativizes all earthly status quos. So to affirm the Exodus is to say, let's imagine it this way. I am a slave. My father was a slave. My grandfather was a slave, and his father was a slave, too. If there's anything that seems clear to me, it's that my son, too, will be a slave. And then comes the Exodus and says, but maybe not. It's that maybe not that introduces a kind of revolutionary possibility into human life. And then on a third level, what the Hasidic tradition does with that second point is to insist that that's not just true on a national level, but it is also true on a personal level. There are many status quos in my life that I may take to be permanent, but that may in fact be overturnable. I don't necessarily need to be the kind of person who always ends up in this or that kind of oppressive situation. It is first and foremost a story about the Jews and their liberation by God and their first case of freedom, but it has implications for the rest of the world and needs to. And then for any of those things to be possible, there is not only external work, there is also internal transformation. That is, you know, the leaving of the internal Egypt. That is the finding of the place of internal freedom and expanding that point. So there's all those levels at the same time. Ideally, all of those levels kind of function simultaneously. Now, it's of course the case that different people and different communities at different moments 
may end up accenting one or the other more, more heavily, but they all have to be there. And ideally, they should all be there together. When, when the Bible says, which could probably best be rendered as, you know what it feels like to be an outsider. How can you know that if you remain too afraid to actually engage with the parts of you that have most deeply felt that way? That there's a way in which um, understanding the ways that you have been downtrodden um, is integral to the process of learning to care more and be more present with downtroddenness of other people. How do we take that from being a, a narrative out there and really make that internal and personal in our lives at Passover? I want to share with you something that I have found actually sort of helpful in this way. It is very common um, in Hasidic texts to talk about the obligation to discover what my internal Egypt is and then to figure out a way to leave. Of course, figuring out a way to leave is really hard. And there's one Hasidic text, one passage in, 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 in the Svas Emes, one of the most influential Hasidic texts, that I personally have found very provocative and inspiring, in which, if I understand him correctly, he is offering another model, which is rather than identifying the Egypt and trying to escape, he suggests finding the part of me that is still free and allowing that point to expand living from there. There may be 98% of me that feels stuck. How about trying to identify with the 2% that doesn't? To discern possibility, even and maybe especially in the places where we've come to the conclusion this is impossible. So if we take the, this Hasidic idea seriously, how does, our, how does that change what we do at Passover? Well, I think one thing that it means is that we are not just talking about broad-scale theology and not just talking about broad-scale political history of the Jewish people, but are really also talking about the darkest places in our own internal worlds. Um, I, I, I think it's actually a really interesting question to, to figure out ways to develop um, spiritual practices for Pesach that are about cultivating freedom and liberation, and that that ought to be part of what the Pesach experience is. Um, again, either in the more, I would say, widespread Hasidic approach to find Egypt, or as it were, to find the promised land inside and to make it um, more dominant in, in my consciousness and my psyche. But I, I think we probably have a lot of work to do in figuring out how to build practices around that. Maybe maybe the, the piece to do is to step away from the traditional telling of the tale and start doing a week of introspection. My inclination is always to avoid the not A, but instead B, and instead to think about how A can be broadened and made even more profound by the incorporation of B. Those practices that enable me to both feel and actually be freer have the potential to be sacred. I, I, I agree with that completely. If you are not feeling free yourself, it is hard to commit yourself to working for the freedom of others. I agree with that. The only thing that I think is important is not to say that the obligation to help others struggling to be free only sets in once I myself am free. 
I always have that obligation. And one of the things I may need to do in order to render myself more capable of living up to those obligations is to be committed to my own freedom as well. Because I always worry about the kind of spiritual life that essentially says, I'm going to go off into a corner and work on my freedom and my capacity to love, and I'll see all the rest of you in 15 years. Ideally, those things should be integrated and whole together. My striving for my own inner freedom and my deep commitment to your and my external freedom should be whole, should be integrated, should go together. What remains challenging is figuring out how to make that happen in actuality. I think it's intellectually, it's a powerful model. One can really ask the question in a group one trusts, where am I stuck? What is my Egypt? And what do I really think I could do to leave it? And then again, the Sfas MS model that I proposed, um, well, I know I feel stuck so much of the time, but what are the ways in which I'm really here and I feel okay? I'll give you an example from my own pastoral life, which may strike some people as strange. I remember years ago, a kid coming to my office and saying, I am so totally, totally depressed. I can't even imagine it ever being different. And sort of on a whim, kind of in a moment of not really sure, being sure what I was asking, I said to him, I'm just curious, the part of you that's reporting to me on how depressed you are, is that part depressed also? And he said, oh, I don't know, that part of me is kind of more watching it. And I thought, oh, that's amazing. Let's talk to that part for a few minutes. I want to have a conversation with that part about how it can help the part that he's reporting on. That's sort of what I'm starting to talk about here. I'm aware that I don't fully know how to do it yet, but it's, it's really trying to engage in conversation with the part of me that remains free and helping it maybe liberate the parts of me that are unfree. Well, and I wonder also if this is why we focus on the exodus and not on getting to the promised land, that the integration of all of these things remains elusive. But the journey to get there is what we're what we're battling and struggling towards. We don't focus our story and our, our real primary myth on that promised land. We focus our story on that the hardest moment, that challenge and that place. And that's where we focus our attention at Passover. The, the Haggadah mimics the Bible in that the Bible is essentially the story of a people journeying towards a particular place that then mysteriously and almost bizarrely ends just as they're about to actually get there. And the Haggadah you know, mimics and reproduces exactly that, right? Which is, we tell a story, we're going, we're going, we're going, we're going, next year in Jerusalem. And I think there are two things there. One is we can talk about the centrality of the journey, but also, crucially, to admit the, the reality that we are in all kinds of ways forced to live in a great prolonged period of not yet. We all live in the not yet. We dream of a world in which, you know, human dignity is real. Many of us dream of a world in which God's presence is manifest. And we live in a world of profoundly not yet. On the one hand, the, the liberation from Egypt has happened. On the other hand, the arrival in the land has not. And it's a, it's a really kind of fascinating decision to have the Torah end as you stand on the precipice of entering, but you don't enter. 
and many in many ways that that recapitulates both the work of our lives but also what's frankly painful and hard about it it's hard to spend your whole life in a kind of not yet and yet if you care about justice if you care about a good society if you care about a society animated by kindness and goodness and mutual responsibility we don't really have a choice we do live in a not yet well and the flip side is if you got to the place where you're sat down at the Passover table with the beautiful um, silverware and the beautiful cups and plenty of wine and plenty of food, and you fooled yourself into thinking that you're gotten there, let's drag you back and retell the story and remind you and discomfort you so that even as you feel like you are there, you remember that you aren't really there. Yeah, no, I think that is really right. I mean, I, I think one of the great challenges is how, um, in particular, in, in, a, in, in a time where many Jews live in great comfort, um, really being able to internalize the first person narrative of, I was a slave, is really, really hard. It takes tremendous kind of act of moral imagination to wake up the morning after the Seder and say, wow. I'm a new person today than I was yesterday because I I was liberated from slavery. What implications does that have? Maybe another way of saying this is like really profound ritual imagination to sit at a seder and imagine. You know, I'm going to internalize the experience of having been freed, so that I can say the sentence in every generation a Jew has to see him or herself as if she or he was a or a slave in Egypt. That's a, I mean, that's a very tall order. I'm not sure how many of us really try, but it seems to me very clear we ought to. The ways in which the Seder pushes us back to a kind of simultaneous embrace of gratitude for freedom and a memory of not yet being free. The ways in which matzah, for example, is both the bread of freedom and the bread of oppression. And what it's like, on the one hand, we don't want to be brought back to slavery because then we will and probably be powerless. But we don't want to be brought to a complacent freedom where we can no longer remember what suffering looks like. So we want to create a certain kind of freedom, which is a freedom that is committed to remembering its own oppression. That is the kind of freedom that the Bible is obsessed with, right? Hence the constant mandate of you should remember, you should remember, you should remember. But that's a very hard freedom to create. Because, you know, certain kinds of freedom spoil us or, you know, render us forgetful. And this is the kind of freedom with a, an overpowering mandate to remember. That's hard work, I think. It feels like the way that Shai presented it is, you know, maybe Passover still is the right place to start, right? Because it really does focus us on these deep ethical questions of, what does it mean to live in the world with a story in which you were once a slave, in which you were once an unwelcome minority in a place, you know, in which you were that many times throughout your history? What does it mean to now be in a position where that's not true anymore, or that's much less true? Yeah, I think that, that in general, observing or engaging with, the, with this story allows us to have some very fundamental conversations. If we really delve into it, as Shai has recommended, then we're really getting to core issues about what it means to be human, what it means to be in relationship, 
what it means to have power, not have power. And those are fundamental questions. Most days, you know, you're getting up, you're going to work, you're doing what you need to do to get dinner on the table, hopefully have a little bit of fun, have some good times, but you're not getting a lot of time to think about those deep questions. And I think that one of the things that this story does is it pushes us to think of some of those very, very fundamental questions. And that's another reason that we're so excited about talking about Passover, because I think that the universal questions, even as we're taping this, we're not even sure that the that the, the way we're going to celebrate Passover may change, because Passover is a story that relates to current events. It relates to power dynamics. Everything that's going on in the world relates back to Passover because the, the themes are so universal and so timeless. You know, I, I think about Passover seders and I worry that our experience shouldn't be that the bottom line message of Passover is we were slaves in Egypt and let's make sure that that, that kind of thing never happens to us again. You know, that I feel like that's not a message that is going to be heard with a lot of excitement by most Jews most of the time. I think that probably all Jews some of the time will resonate with that message, and it depends what's going on. And that message is always an important message. But when you look around and experience the world around you, and you have this sense that I think I'm in a lot more danger of maybe becoming the pharaoh in the story, or I'm a lot more in danger of becoming one of the regular Egyptians in the story that kind of lived in a society that was only able to exist in the way that it existed because it was using these slaves. That's the story that I feel like may resonate with Jews today more powerfully in the sense of like, that's who I may be in the story. And if we don't have a way of experiencing this holiday in a way that forces us to contend with those possibilities, then I feel like maybe we aren't experiencing Passover in the way that it maybe has the potential to best speak to us today. I take great inspiration from the conversation with Shai about how profound a story this is, that this is a story that's worth, sometimes we want to skip over the whole discussion and just go right to the meal. I think the conversation with Shai today makes me think, you know what? time to take a deep dive. Go in, listen to the story. Think about it. What, where does it really resonate? How does it really relate to other kinds of power? What are the places where you have freedom in your life? So let's take a listen to my conversation with Rabbi Rachel Kahn-Troster, who is the Director of Programming for Truas, a rabbinic call for human rights. And Rachel and I discussed what we can learn about slavery today and how that can add real meaning to the idea that remember that we were slaves in Egypt and what that means for us today as modern consumers, especially of food. I think most of us today assume that slavery has to look like it did in the American South, people being bought and sold in markets and chained up. And while that's true in some parts of the world, most modern day slavery, which is also called human trafficking, looks different. Um, I think we classically think of maybe children who are working in factories overseas or who are working in the chocolate industry. Uh, some of us may know about sex trafficking, where people are kept in sex work against their will. But really, we see trafficking and modern-day slavery around the world and the United States in any place where workers are at risk of being exploited. And what makes people vulnerable? That's a really important question. You know, poverty and movement. I mean, people are in countries where they don't 
you know, where they're on the move and they are desperate to get out of where they're going and they're looking for a better life. Um, when people are poorer and so they reach out for opportunities to better their own lives and end up in unfortunate circumstances, those are some of the conditions that lead to modern day slavery. The International Labor Organization says there's about 21 million people today who are in some form of modern day slavery. Um, the State Department says 27 million people. We feel pretty confident with that number as well. This is something that we find everywhere. Most of us will encounter trafficking probably in the goods that we buy. So we'll see products of forced labor in iron, in chocolate, in cotton. Cotton's really interesting, actually. You know, we think that you know trafficking is a form of crime, and yet a lot of our cotton comes from Uzbekistan. And the government there every year will pull the children out of school and force them to work in the cotton field. So we can also see government-sponsored forms of, of forced labor as well. It's really a crime that touches all of us. We often don't know that we're benefiting from it. Poverty and migration are the biggest drivers of this today. So what? how do you see our Jewish responsibility to, towards this issue? And how does it connect to Passover? The Jewish responsibility to ending slavery feels very direct. Of all the issues that we work on at Trod, no one has ever said to us, well, why do you work on slavery? Because the Jewish narrative begins with the story of slavery to redemption. Um, and so I think many of us know that like we were slaves in Egypt, and because of, you know, because of God's mercy, we were set free. One thing that we find important at Trod when we're telling the story of modern-day slavery is that we actually look back at the Passover story and try and understand the story that we're trying to tell. Because the Passover story isn't just about exploitation and being slaves, it's also about freedom and redemption. And what does it mean to become a free person? And a lot of the stories about modern day slavery are often stories about exploitation. They tell you the bad things that have happened to people and they don't teach us how do we learn from people who've been freed from modern day slavery and how they rebuild their lives and how do we help them on their journey towards redemption. After all, Passover, our story was about learning to be free. We think about, you know, the generation who died in Egypt, you know, and they're complaining. We, why do we tell our children, well, they didn't know how to be free. Um, and today we have people who've suffered from modern day slavery who are trying to rebuild their lives. And if we listen to them, they're telling us what they need and we have to tell their stories, not just so that we're telling the story of the bad things that happened to them, but also teaching people that, some, that another world is possible for survivors of human trafficking if only we listen to them. And freedom is complicated. If freedom were easy, the people would not have asked to go back to Egypt every single time they were challenged. Um, and to really be free, we have, and to make sure that people continue to be free, we can't just say, oh, we'll go find where a few people are trafficked and free them. Um, and we'll make sure that they have some support while they learn to be free. We have to say to ourselves, why does this still happen? The question you know, I've often wondered, we ask ourselves, why is it that the Egyptians as a whole were punished? Um, and I think we, we you know, some of the traditional answers are, well, you know, we had to show God's power. But the reality is, is that the Egyptians, by not protesting against the fact that Pharaoh was enslaving the Israelites, were benefiting from a society in which people were exploited. And one of the challenges of living in the world today is that most of it is hard to opt out of a world in which people are being exploited. Um, unless you became like a radical homesteader, and then you wouldn't have any time to be an activist. So given that, right, that's what people say, like, am I only bought all the right things? And, 
And also the focus on our own individual behavior makes us feel guilty, right? Oh, if only I could shop and only buy things that were pure, then it would all be okay. And I think that's funny. I understand that paralysis because that's what it's like to go grocery shopping with me. But it's actually harder to wrestle with the moral question of, well, what does it mean to be part of a world in which people are exploited for our benefit? And truly creating a world of redemption is saying, how do we look at the root causes of that exploitation? Um, forced labor happens because worker rights are degraded. Um, it is the extreme end of a continuum of worker exploitation. Um, Modern-day slavery happens because people are cast aside by society, and we can't create solutions that ignore those things. I think what I'll be experimenting with for Passover this year, and, and I kind of hope for, for every year, is can Passover be something that I experience once a year and it makes me more concerned for the people who may be enslaved today or in some version of slavery, some other unfortunate way of living in the world. Can I do something every year that makes me more attuned to that than I was the year before, more likely to do my part to intervene than the year before? If Passover doesn't do that, then for me, it's a disappointment. The truth is that I'm not 100% sure that I've experienced that up till now. I'm not 100% sure that a lot of other people have experienced that up till now. And I'm not 100% sure that I know how to make it work that way. But aspirationally, that's for me what I'm trying to make it do. I really think there is a way to look at Passover to say it's a wonderful time for family to get together, to focus us on our kind of origin story as a Jewish people, to focus us on this long chain of family tradition and tradition before that about how we experience this holiday, how we experience Judaism in our family. But there's also this other level to it. And I think that most people do agree and do wish that it would really accomplish some transformation in our lives. And an interview like that really focuses me again on the question of, well, if anything isn't the transformation that we need to have on Passover, one that kind of shakes us out of our complacency about just living our lives and not thinking about what all happens sort of under the surface in ways that we're totally not seeing in front of our eyes. One thing, Dan, that we could take away from the conversation with Rachel is that why don't we make Passover a challenge? Don't worry about the bread for seven days, but for seven days, try and eat ethically. Try not to be using unethical consumer goods. What would that look like? How could what would Passover look like if that was your week of commitment and every day you wrote on, on Facebook or shared with your friends and community what you were doing to try and stop slavery for seven days? I mean that that could be a complete game changer in terms of what the holiday looked like. And if I stopped and had to make ethical decisions at the supermarket and I every single time and I stopped and I really only thought about ethical clothing, I think that that the week will look really different. So I'm hoping to take a little bit of what Rachel has talked taught me in this interview and bring it into the practical meaning of, of the whole week of, of Passover this year. I think that's a really fascinating uh, lens through which to experience it because one of the things that I feel like I've learned over the years is that the strategic plan that uh, is the most exciting is the one that is most realistic. 
you know, and that um, it's all well and good to reach for something really, really super exciting. But if you can't actually achieve it, then it's not really actually that exciting except in the mind. And the idea that that feels to me like something very resonant with a lot of the architecture of Judaism. You know, we think it's possible to live your life in a profoundly different way, but we understand it's going to be really hard for people. So at least start once a week on Shabbat to live that way. And then maybe that'll trickle into the rest of your life, whether that's a traditional observance of Shabbat or a non-traditional observance of Shabbat. This idea, not only that we're setting aside Shabbat as a separate day of the week, but it's actually we're setting aside Shabbat as a day for sort of practicing things that we hope we can actually do the rest of the week eventually as we as we kind of do it over time. Uh, you know, it feels like it, it's really actually kind of fascinating to think about so many other Jewish categories and concepts that way. And I hadn't thought about Passover that way before, but, you know, it does feel achievable that I can spend one week, you know, living to a much higher ethical standard as I do for the rest of the year. And while I think that people who really live at an extremely high ethical standard, who I admire very much, might kind of look askance at that goal and say, well, that's too little, that's, you know, not impressive. But I actually think compared to the way that, you know, I and, and most people live, it's a start, right? And it's uh, it would actually be a really exciting start if that was fundamentally what Passover was uh, accomplishing in people's lives. I'd be really excited about that. Yeah, so that I think that Raquel, um, I'm really grateful to her to giving us that encouragement and helping us think about that. Yep. So as we get close to the conclusion of this episode, we wanted to share a little bit of the reflections of Abigail Pogrebin, who we interviewed in our last episode and who recently wrote the book, My Jewish Year, 18 Holidays, One Wondering Jew. She jumped into all the Jewish holidays over the course of a year, and we wanted to hear some of her reflections on the meaning of Passover. I should note that as she's talking, Abigail makes a reference to Mitzrayim, Egypt, narrow places, and I want to explain that a little bit. The word for Egypt in Hebrew is Mitzrayim, and the word for narrow places is Mitzarim. So there's kind of a pun, a play on words there that a lot of commentators have picked up on to talk about Egypt in that internal way that Shai talked about as a narrow place, the narrow place in which we may be experiencing our lives, that so that Egypt is not only a real place, but also a metaphor for these narrow places that constrict us in our lives. There's a lot of joy in this holiday, and there should be, but it is obviously built on probably the formative event of our history, whether it happened or not which is a great oppression. And whether or not you believe in that story, we have seen ample oppressions. And I'm not someone who says, let's look at all the Mitzrayim, the narrow places that people are in a way that is kind of guilt-inducing. But again, that sense of urgency that Passover is not something we sit around and sort of laughingly make our way through this boring book and then eat together, we should hopefully really empathize on this night with the people who are in their narrow place, who are in their slavery, whether that is an actual slavery or a symbolic one. How one does that, I think people have all kinds of ways of focusing on uh, getting your mind around where there are Egypts today. But I think if you don't do that, find a way to do that at all, 
you're kind of brushing over uh, the reason for this event. I think it is why President Obama had a Seder every year um, in the White House, because it is um, the exodus is for so many people uh, the, the narrative of oppression and deliverance. And we have to really go there, I think, on this holiday, or we're missing the point. So obviously there are lots of different ideas about how to really make the most out of Passover, what its deepest meaning can possibly be, whether it's about our own internal reflection, our reflection on who we want to be in the world, some combination of those things, putting together the ideas from Shai, from Rachel, from Abigail, starts to bring into focus a picture, I think, aspirationally of what we want to accomplish on Passover. It's obvious that in a podcast like this, we could have, and hopefully in future years, we will bring many, many more voices to bear on this question of really what can the meaning of Passover be for our time. For now, we just hope that this is the beginning of a conversation among you, our listeners, as to aspirationally, what do we want Passover to be? What do we think Passover can mean at its best before we jump into some of the components of Passover? But let me give you a little bit of a roadmap of where we're going next in this limited edition of our Passover podcast series. Next episode, we're going to explore the question, which may or may not really be the important question, which is, did the exodus happen? So we're excited to bring you our conversation with two academics who study that question, and we're going to reflect and they're going to reflect on how important it is, whether the exodus happened at all, or if maybe some of it happened and some of it didn't. After that, we're going to go on to talk about the Passover Seder and the food for Passover. So we really hope you'll stick with this series. And as I've said before, please do give us feedback. The best way you could do that is send me an email at dan at nextjewishfuture.org. And also check out our website, judaismunbound.com. Under the resources section, there will soon be a Passover Unbound section. And there's going to be all kinds of great resources there for you to use this Passover. So thanks so much for joining us today. And with that, this has been Holidays Unbound.